Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, pregnancy and childbirth should be safe, dignified, and especially joyful. But for way too many women, particularly black and brown women, complications before, during, and even months after birth are stealing that joy, and even women's lives. Dr. Cherie Livingston is the chair of obstetrics and gynecology at UPMC Lidditz. And for Black Maternal Health Week this week, she's celebrating a pilot project she started during the pandemic to address why some women are dying and what a tried and true system of sisterhood could do to help. It's Tuesday, April 12th. I'm Megan Harris, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. I don't know if this was your perspective, but I feel like growing up, you know, so much of the birth process was hidden from me as a young woman, you know, like exactly. it was, it was all very magical and happened very I much know. behind closed doors. <laughs> and then you get so older true. and you realize exactly how traumatic this is um, and you. how long the recovery period can be. Exactly. And can you imagine women just suffering quietly like that? Like postpartum no. <laughs> depression is real. It is real. You need, you know, this army of people around you, and yet you're expected to kind of go it alone. And I think that programs like this help to um, sort of bust that myth, if you will. Yeah, and I want to talk about that program. So one of the initiatives that's been near and dear to your heart has been this Diversifying Doula Initiative. I know you founded it during the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what it is about doula support specifically that you think can address some of your concerns? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So as an, as an OBGYN physician, specifically a black OBGYN physician, maternal health disparities are uh, both, well, personal because I have uh, black women who I love and black people who I love uh, who are bearing children, be it relatives, um, sisters, cousins. And so um, I did not want to see COVID widen that maternal health disparity gap just like COVID unveiled all of the health disparities. And so with the uh, CARES Act and the funding and the grant opportunities that were prevalent and still are uh, for people who just wanted to not see things get any worse than they were. So I applied for those grants and fortunately UPMC Pinnacle Foundation uh, bestowed a very large grant uh, that allowed us to start a uh, diversifying doula initiative. And the mission of DDI, you'll hear me refer to it as that, is to decrease maternal morbidity and mortality in pregnant people of color through doula care. Doulas are non-medical birth assistants, and they help with advocacy, promoting informational support, physical support, emotional support, and then there's lots of research that shows that having a doula actually improves health outcomes. The Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American College of OBGYNs all support doula care. It's essentially what we call a comprehensive care model because one can't go it alone. The health disparities are just too paramount for one doctor or one midwife or one nurse to believe that that one of us can solve this uh, complicated problem. 
Yeah. Well, and from the patient's perspective, you know, everything about the medical system can be a little bit of a mysterious for us, right? Um, but in pregnancy, it just, it launches you into this entire world of questions you didn't even know you should ask. Uh, how are you finding patients, you know, as they enter this program or they're new to the doula experience? What are they, what are they saying? Um, because it must be, I can imagine it must be really, really helpful and supportive to have someone who knows the right questions to ask and knows how to put your needs first. Absolutely. Um, if patients, patients are surprisingly aware of doulas, uh, but it's almost like they believe that it's, it's some benefit for the wealthy or some benefit for, you know, affluent pregnant people. And, and therein lies the crux of the problem, right? You have this group of people who are most in need, who have the highest morbidity and mortality rates. However, there's this financial barrier. Yeah. How much did doula services cost? The average cost of doulas is a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. Um, and and that's that can be cost prohibitive. And so I co-founded the Diversifying Doula Initiative with that in mind. I said, you know what? We have to reverse these trends and we have to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this issue. And it, it's interesting. Here in Lancaster, we only have one African American doula. And so I looked to my right and looked to my left and said, well, we can't do much with one doula. So uh, <laughs> that was before the program started, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. And and so I was like, well, can't do much with one since, you know, Lancaster births about 700 black babies annually. And so I said, well, what can we do? And so we created sort of two uh, areas of focus for the Diversifying Doula Initiative uh, to create more black and brown doulas and also to provide free doula care for pregnant people of color. Yeah. How many do you have now? I know it's been a little over, a, what, a year and a half that you've had the program up and running? Yeah. we set, Yeah. This past summer, we celebrated DDI's first birthday. It was pretty cool. We had patients and babies and the community showed up. We went from one to 26. We trained 26 doulas of color here in Lancaster. And you know, that really provided them with the opportunity to create this entrepreneurial pathway uh, because they can use, you know, the the desires as a doula to also uh, create a lucrative income and um, create a business, if you will. And we paid through grant money, we paid for their training. And that essentially provided them with, you know, this entrepreneurial pathway at a cost of $2,500. And not that I'm discouraging college, but for the cost of $2,500, they essentially got a career out of it. And to date, as far as pregnant people that we've provided free doula care, we're up at, at about 160 yeah. Well, so how does the program work? You know, they get trained. Um, I assume they don't necessarily need any uh, medical training before they enter the doula program. Um, and then for the patient care model, are they there for every appointment or do they step in, you know, kind of closer to delivery date? Yeah. So um, let's talk about each pathway, right? So we yeah. have almost like an arm one and an arm two. So the arm one pathway uh, is is our doula pathway. And so they do 16 weeks of uh, what we call asynchronous training. So lots of it is online. And then for eight weeks, they do um, or did, it's all past tense now, uh, but uh, they did um, eight weeks of weekly online training with a certified uh, doula trainer. Now, keep in mind, doulas are non-medical birth assistants. So our doulas know and understand that when they come into the hospital, 
that they are advocating for the patient and not providing medical care for the patient. And so after this 16 weeks of asynchronous training and then the eight weeks of online, they do a hands-on training, which, you know, shout out to UPMC Littis. They allowed all three of our cohorts to have their um, hands-on training sessions. It was a two-day hands-on training course. We flew in a uh, certified doula uh, from Texas who did lots of hands-on training. And, um, you know, it, we really just enjoyed that uh, time training the, the cohort over the course of a year. And now we're just slowly getting each doula certified because there is a process with becoming certified uh, and it's working out very well. So is this program ongoing? Um, do you imagine more trainings in the future? You know, 26, 27 women sound like a lot compared to one, but still probably not enough to meet the need. Well, it's, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, if you're going to train, uh, you want to train correctly. And so it's, it's, it's not about just cranking out quantity. It's about producing the quality that these high-risk women need and deserve. And so our focus at DDI is to kind of pivot right now. Um, the, the pathway is always open to continue training but right now, our focus is to really support the 26 doulas, get them all certified so that we can, in fact, build this wonderful uh, comprehensive care model here in Lancaster and beyond, because the whole point is for it to be duplicative. We want people to understand DDI and be able to reproduce this model so that every person, uh, but specifically pregnant people of color, but every person has access to excellent doula care. And then for patients, how do they engage? Like, does it always start from a position of risk? Yeah. So uh, when, when we talk about risk, I think it's important to break it down from a patient perspective, a provider perspective, um, community, and then the healthcare system. Because for the patient, I, I, I don't want patients to feel like, especially Black pregnant people. Like they're so tired of hearing, oh, you're three to four times more likely to die. I was on an interview the other day and I, I'm telling you, I had a black woman say, I don't want to get pregnant because I'm going to die. That's awful. It is awful. Um, and, and they've heard enough of it. So I think that when, uh, when we talk with patients and now I'm talking about the patient provider dynamic, it's important that we categorize how the patient can help but also how the providers can help uh, and obviously the healthcare system in the community. So everybody has their contributions that they can submit to help the problem. And from a patient perspective, I, I like to tell them when you come to your visits, ask questions, write your questions down and make sure that your needs are getting met. And then we try to focus on building trust because that's lacking in the communities of color um, as far as trusting the medical community. We know about Tuskegee. We know about Henrietta Lacks. And for the most part, we now have COVID to even prove that uh, those health disparities and health inequities exist that are, that are contributing to the distrust that many people have. So I think if we continue to build that relationship and as providers, we uh, do implicit bias training and recognize that um, you know, everybody has bias. Bias is sort of the brain's uh, natural way of taking a shortcut. So it's not bad until we take that bias and we allow it to become discriminatory. 
Hey, newsletter editor Francesca DeBecco here. I'm interrupting this episode to tell you about an opening here at CityCast Pittsburgh. We're looking for an audio producer with strong editing chops and a striking sense of creativity to join our team. We're all about local journalism here and we have a ton of fun doing it. What could be better than sharing the 411 and the 412? Head to citycast.fm forward slash jobs to apply. And hey, while you're on the site, don't forget to subscribe to the daily newsletter. I'm always sharing the latest news you can use and events around town you don't want to miss. See you in your inbox. Have you found that your fellow clinicians and the system at large, you know, UPMC is is enormous, um, have been receptive to some of those trainings and been good partners for you? Um, you know, I know, I think the last stat I saw was something like 5% of all doctors are black, which makes it much more difficult when you're in the community. People want to be seen and be understood by people who look like them. That's that's yeah, just natural. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very natural. And there's uh, lots of data to support that. Some great studies that are coming out that have come out and uh, continue to support that uh, there is something to be said about cultural congruence. Uh, their compliance rates are higher. Doctors of color are more likely to practice in um, minority communities and um there is just that relationship that exists there. And obviously it doesn't mean that providers who aren't of color can't provide excellent care. We're looking for that additive benefit. Uh, UPMC has been nothing short of supportive of the programs that we're doing with Diversifying Doula Initiative. And you touched on something that I think it's important to uh, recognize that UPMC supports. So I am a uh, founding member for an organization called Patients Are Waiting, which essentially is the overarching uh, organization that we built DDI from. The mission of Patients Are Waiting is to eliminate health disparities by increasing diversity in medicine. So that needle that you just talked about, that 5% that hasn't moved over 40 years, our goal is to help that needle move. We want to diversify medicine, eliminating health disparities by increasing the number of clinicians of color, making these pipelines less leaky. It takes 10 years to become a doctor, right? Those are all touch points of potential leak. If a student of color gets a C on a test, you know, in year one of 10 trying to become a doctor, do they have the correct systems in place so that the world doesn't crash around them and say, oh, you weren't meant to become a doctor? Um, as opposed to flooding in um, the resources that are needed so that that trajectory can be met. Um, because, you know, some of the best doctors are are the ones that go the course, that have great resources, that have people backing them. And that's, that's what's going to move the needle. You're speaking to my heart. A, a C in intro to undergrad chemistry really derailed me from a medical career. That I exactly, that might exactly. For. And see, I, I have the impression <laughs> and I have friends that, that, that went be... on to be medical providers. <laughs> exactly. They were fantastic. I just got exactly. scared. <laughs> exactly. And what do you need? You need people like you know, patients are waiting, breathing life into those dreams, saying, "No, you can do it. Don't, don't stop. We need you." And that's why we call it patients are waiting because essentially patients are waiting for uh, black and brown doctors, because it, medis- medical providers have to reflect the communities that they're serving. Otherwise, people just don't have the trust that they should. Well, it's just, it's so much easier to engage if you feel understood from the moment you say hello, right? Exactly, exactly. 
You know, here in Pittsburgh, we have a few programs that are up off the ground. Um, the Midwife Center, of course, acts as like a conduit to a lot of these organizations. Um, there's a group called Brown Mamas that does a lot of doula training. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, of course, a Healthy Start program that is all over the country that tries to connect folks to different kinds of services. Is there more from your perspective that, you know, individual communities or organizations or governments could be doing to support black and brown moms, especially new moms who are brand new to this whole process? Well, for sure. I mean, my what when I'm giving these speeches, what I tell people is nothing happens without three things, action, money and legislation. Uh, that's just a matter of fact. And action, you need docs like us. You need people like you who are just continuing to beat the ground and say, we have to change these outcomes. Money, we need organizations to pour dollars and funds into programs that we have. And then as far as legislation, we have the Momnibus Act, the Kira Johnson Act. Uh, many house bills are, are uh, you know, trying to get pushed through. We know that Medicaid was just expanded here in Pennsylvania last week. Uh, that's yeah, a to plus provide because, services for up to a year. Yes, after birth. up to a year. Uh, you know, it, what we're seeing is many of the preventable deaths occur after 60 days. And so if people lose their health insurance, we're not helping solve the problem. We're actually contributing to it by letting, uh, you know, their, their medical care lapse. And so I think expanding Medicaid to these pregnant people for one year is part of the solution. I noticed the White House, too, issued its own proclamation last week. Um, You know, what is it like for you to see our nation's highest office acknowledge, at least in words, um, to commit to doing something about this issue that you've now focused your entire career on? Yeah, I I think it says something. I think that the word is getting out that people recognize that pregnant people's lives matter. And it's important for us to not just say that we want change, but force our legislation to promote change. And we can do that through passage of bills just like this. Dr. Cherie Livingston is the founder of the Diversifying Doula Initiative and the chair of obstetrics and gynecology at UPMC Lidditz. Dr. Livingston, thank you so much for your work and for what you're doing for Pennsylvania. Thank you for having me. Some more news before you go. Alexa, what's the forecast in Pittsburgh this week? In Pittsburgh for the next seven days, 68 degrees Fahrenheit and partly sunny weather. 76 degrees and thunderstorms, 65 degrees and showers, 61 degrees and partly sunny weather, 55 degrees and intermittent clouds, 51 degrees and lots of clouds, 51 degrees and rainy weather. Anyone else kind of want to cry? KDK pointed out this weekend that if you've been feeling a little low lately, it might have something to do with the weather. It's mid-April, y'all, and we've had four, four truly sunny days so far this year. And, well, you heard it from the bot. We've got a few more weeks to go. Also, it's 412 day, which means you should probably avoid the North Shore if you don't absolutely have to be there. It's going to be an ish show this morning as folks pile in for the Pirates home opener against Chicago. Fittingly, the game starts at 412 p.m. 
And if the lineup doesn't get your blood flowing, this might. We talked to Post-Gazette beat writer Jason Mackey last week about why the Pirates never win, bad development, the owner, Bob Nutting, who won't spend any real money to help us do that, blah, blah, blah. But Jason said a lot of the issue from his side has to do with our closed financials. So for decades now, no one's known exactly how much money bottom line Bob is making, even though we're literally the worst team in baseball. But Jason's colleague, business writer Mark Belko, got a scoop. He found that since 2007, most of Pirates player payroll has been covered just from ticket and concession revenues. That doesn't even account for the millions Bob Nutting is raking in from TV contracts and more. So go buckos, I guess. I mean, if the owner won't root for you with his wallet, I guess the least we can do is be nice to you on a podcast. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, please let us know. Ratings and reviews help other people find us. And you know that newsletter is still daily, so make sure you're signed up to get the best from us every day. We'll be back on Thursday with more news from around the city. We'll talk to you soon. So that's the one I'm pretty sure we will need. And my computer's preparing for takeoff, so I'm going to get my little thingy. Does yours breathe this heavily every time you do anything?